Good Bowl Outdoors with Lauren and Ali Schrag and lots, lots more. Let's go. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman coming at you from the Broken Time Studio in Hayden, Idaho. How you guys doing? This is episode number 55. Welcome to the show. Glad you guys are here and tuning in. We are just rolling right along here. What a week we're having. Trying to get this episode out a little bit early because I'll be traveling uh, quite a bit this week. So uh, that's kind of the game plan. And I got a great episode, a great conversation lined up for you guys today with my friends Lauren and Allie Schrag, and they run an outfit called Good Bull Outdoors. And they do, you know, hunting, conservation, photography, videography. Uh, they, well, they do all sorts of stuff that we talk about within the show. And so the kind of the first half's uh, discussing who they are, what they do, uh, you know. And, and actually, for those of you that want to, if, if you're like me and you suck at taking pictures, and especially of wildlife like I do, um, we talk a little bit about how to become a little bit better at that. Uh, yeah, you know, just improve the imagery and, and how you're going to take a picture and what kind of equipment to use and stuff like that. It's, it's super interesting to me. Uh, hopefully you guys find it that way too. And then the, the second half, we kind of roll into a lot of hunting discussion, uh, and talk about wolves and their impact on the landscape and kind of the initiative that's, uh, that's gone on in Colorado this last election season. And, and uh, talk about that ballot box initiative, uh, or I'm sorry, ballot box wildlife management, the bizarre process of having people that know nothing about wildlife vote on wildlife initiatives. Um, so we do dive into that. Pretty fun. I, I, you guys are going to get a lot out of this episode. We have a lot of fun. So uh, I want to get into that. Before we do, there's a couple of uh, just kind of like housekeeping things I want to address real quick. Um, and, and I guess... It's not a housekeeping thing, but it's something that's been, uh, it's not bothering me, but I feel kind of useless and I, I don't, I don't know how to answer a lot of these questions. So many of you have been, uh, sending me emails and, and whatnot about, um, you know, what kind of gun, what kind of rifle, uh, what's the best caliber, what kind of bullets, what kind of ammo, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, guys, I want you to know, I, I don't really get into those kind of details when especially when it comes to firearms uh i just i think that a lot of it is opinion and personal preference it's it's not something like i i have a few go-to things that that i use because of the circumstance that that's just a type of rifle i have uh i don't I don't seek out certain calibers. I don't seek out certain ammo. I don't. I don't have you know exact science setups. Um, well, let me put it to you this way. Here, here's a good way. Yeah, have you guys ever seen that movie um, Quigley Down Under? It's got like Tom Selleck in it, and that uh, that dude that plays the bad guy. Gosh, I can't remember his name. Uh, he was a bad guy in Die Hard as well. 
Uh, he plays a really good uh, bad guy. He's a British guy. Anyway, in Quigley Down Under, there it's like towards the end of the movie, and um, Tom Selleck kind of found himself back at the compound where the bad guy is, was kind of surrounded by all his all his other bad guys helping him out, and the bad guy gives him this pistol and unloads it uh, so that there's only you know a few rounds in it or whatever, and then hands it over to him. And uh, the, uh, then he, he wants to do like this Wild West. The, the bad guy has like this this uh, obsession with uh, the Wild West and, and shootouts in, in the States, you know, going on set in the, about the same time period. So he hands him this rifle and paces out to a certain, uh, you know, length or, or whatever. And they get to a point where they're going to draw. And then Tom Selleck draws and shoots all the bad guys and ends the show. And he walks over to the main bad guy. And, and he says, I said I didn't have much use for this kind of gun. I never said I didn't know how to use it. And, and that's kind of that's real similar as to how you can um, look at how I am with firearms. I, I, I have a very, like, it's like a real pragmatic, guns are simply a tool. I'm not like a gun enthusiast. I don't know, I don't know a ton about them, but I, I know how to use them. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I don't go out and... And shoot for fun. Uh, I don't like go do you know shooting clays and and uh, trap and skeet and all that kind of stuff. I just don't have I don't have that passion when it comes to firearms. And I think it a lot of that comes out of my time in the military. I spent you know five years carrying around a rifle pretty much everywhere I went. We shot all the time. Uh, I it just kind of made me lose interest in being enthusiastic about being uh, a gun enthusiast kind of thing. Now. That said, I love guns, and I have a lot of guns, and I'm really, really good with my guns that I have. That does not mean I can answer your questions with any kind of level of expertise as to what kind of caliber and bullet and grain and, and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff that that I get uh, from a lot of these questions. I, I just, you know, I just don't want to answer those. I, I really don't want to answer those because, I, 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 A, I'd lead you astray. Uh, because I be- and B, I believe most of that is just personal preference. Just you know, whatever rifle you decide to get, just practice with it, use it. Guns to me are simply a tool, and uh, I know how to use them. I'm damn good with them, and but I I'm not like a gun enthusiast who like geeks out on uh, you know calibers and, and ammo and stuff like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I have a lot of friends that do that, um, but I, for me, I just don't do that, and so I don't I don't want to like kind of you know, either steer you in the wrong direction or, or mislead anybody as to my level of expertise on all these technical details about firearms. I'm, I'm just not the right guy to ask. Uh, there are plenty of dudes out there that are. Uh, I, like I said, I've got tons of friends that like geek out on on, on that kind of stuff. And, and uh, it, you know, you can go online. Um, I actually... Don't do that. I don't know. I don't don't go on social media and ask. That, that, that could be... There's, there's forums and stuff that are out there that are a little bit better for that kind of thing. Um, and so anyway, the point being, I love hearing from you guys, but, um, if you ask me like some kind of technical question about firearms, I'm probably not going to answer it. I just, I just don't want to get into that discussion. Uh, for me, it's their, their tools and it's personal preference and, and that's it. That's it with that. But be advised if you go on social media, you can go on social media and get ripped apart. And, uh, that's, what I kind of want to leave you with, with before we get into this discussion is, for some reason, the, the guns are like a hot topic and firearms and ammo preferences and all these kind of things. 
Uh, actually, before I go there, you know who's really good with that kind of stuff? Listen to the, some Randy Newberg episodes on his podcast. He's he's really good as it pertains to hunting. Uh, not saying like competition shooting or anything like that. I'm I'm talking about as it pertains to hunting. Randy Newberg really has it dialed in, and he could he could steer you in the right direction for that kind of stuff. But um, you know, you just you kind of at this point with the the nature of how social media is going lately and. And uh, the the way you know between censorships and and people getting uh, talking to each other like they wouldn't talk to them in person and things like that, I don't know that I would ask anybody online uh, because especially like that 6.5 Creedmoor, it's uh, it just kind of turns into a mess. It's a shit show. Everybody gets on there and bashes each other, and and uh, I I guess that that's like. Now, the norm, what you should expect if you were to express an opinion one way or the other on, on any kind of firearm. In fact, I have a I have a song for you. I have a song I'm going to have you guys listen to that will just really lay that out for you. Let me know what you think. Uh, reach out to me at jim at thewesternhuntsman.com and check us out online at social, or on all our social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, uh, got rid of Twitter. And uh, that's that's about it for right now. Um, we are on YouTube and you can go to, if if you're on Instagram, check out the the link tree. It'll kind of send you to all the different episodes and website and all that kind of stuff. So, guys, with that, let's get after it with uh, Lauren and Allie. You guys are gonna really like them. Um, they're super human beings. I, I really enjoyed having them on the show. Uh, I'll kick us off with this nice little tune I found for you. Uh, it's called Experts Online. And it talks about how everybody becomes an expert online suddenly, and it's uh, it's a great tune. Add it to your playlist. Uh, let's go. Name it all on my roots. I really like to shoot, so I bought me a brand new gun. Six point five Creed more. The second coming of the Lord goes great with my manly man bun. But when I posted it on Facebook, I really was shook. Everybody ripped me apart. Even though they've never shot one, they're hating on this gun. Blew my mind like a popcorn fart. Oh, I've got friends who are experts on mine. They've killed a thousand milk in a short ass time, but they know best. Yeah, they know more than the rest. Oh, I'm in love with my 6.5. When I'm done, ain't nothing gonna be alive except not according to my friends who are experts online. Well, I guess I was wrong, and I love wearing thongs. My new gun makes me stupid and lame. I won't ask any more about the mighty creed more. My answer's in their resting bitch face. Opinions are facts, and you must be an ass to make a point on the world wide web. So I'll smile to your face and then put you in your place 
when I see you on the internet. I got friends who are experts on lightning. They killed a thousand milk in a short ass time, but they know best. Yeah, they know more than the rest. Oh, I'm in love with my six points. When I'm done, ain't nothing gonna be alive Except not according to my friends Who are experts on mine Yeah, I've got friends who are experts on mine They've killed a thousand milk in a short-ass time But they know best They know more than the rest I'm in love with my 6.5 When I'm done, ain't nothing gonna be alive Except not according to my friends Who are experts on life Right, guys this week i'm on the phone um or the line i should say with lauren and ali shrag of good bowl outdoors guys did i say your last name right there i didn't check before i hit record you did i'm i'm impressed uh you should be i i worked really hard on that one i practiced <laughs> <laughs> guys uh i i'm really excited to have you guys on because i've been following your instagram for a long time and um lauren and ali are down in the estes park colorado area and our, our photographers, they're involved in conservation and hunting and videography and all sorts of things that we're going to get into with this episode. So, uh, guys, first of all, thank you. Uh, thanks tons for uh, joining me on this episode. Looking forward to it. Yeah, our pleasure. Let's kick this off. I want to, I want to know kind of from, from your guys's end, can you tell us about Good Bull Outdoors and tell us a little bit about your platform, uh, what your goals are and the story behind it? And, and we'll just kind of take the conversation from there. Well, Ellie, why don't you start with talking about the, how the name came about? Well, so um, Lauren actually introduced me to elk. Um, I'm originally from Texas and uh, didn't do much elk hunting back there. I grew up white tail hunting. Uh, met Lauren and he kind of introduced me into the whole elk phenomenon and I fell in love with that. Um, so when we started talking about doing uh, Instagram and that that kind of stuff to figure out where we wanted to take our company, um, we were thinking of names and I'm an Aggie, um, Texas A&M, and one of our long list of traditions. One of them is uh, if you're doing something that is either um, nice or uh, philanthropic, um, the the school, everyone, all the students will call you a good bull. Well, on that flip side, we're, like I said, we're big elk enthusiasts. Um, so we, we thought good bull would be a perfect name because we're always looking for good bulls um, and we're trying to um, give give the 
hunting um, industry in general, you know, a, a lot more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, I, I think, you know, really kind of where it came about here is, you know, we kept looking for bulls and, yeah. and elk. And, you know, we're obviously very elk obsessed. If you look at our Instagram or our Facebook yeah. page, yeah. You know, how many photos yeah. that we we put up there on uh, on elk and we kind of added mule deer more recently to it and we're starting to get a lot more of that that mule deer crowds so now we have interesting conversations around that but um mm-hmm. you know around the, the the good bull side i mean it really had this uh, nice little double entendre that that we particularly enjoy and um you know you you hear people often in hunting say oh that's a good bull over there um you know if they're lucky yeah enough to see it. yeah no, it's a it's a perfect name for the platform too. I mean, it it is because and it, it, when you guys post a picture and I I'm I'm kind of scrolling by it. That's exactly what I think. Oh, that's a good bull, and so oh, good bull outdoors ran it. So Allie, I know I know you wanted to give uh, me a hard time over my uh, Longhorns hat I was wearing that was by complete accident. Um, <laughs> you you went you were going to school down in Texas, and how did you guys meet? <laughs> we're laughing yeah. uh, we actually met on tinder we did oh you did yeah we and, did and and so i so i don't know much about tinder tinder is that dating app thing right that that people i don't know i don't know how that works but swipe left or right and luckily we we both yeah yeah that right. one yep so but, we we got got met up on there and we started having conversations initially and um interestingly home. enough so she was uh raising a uh um what was it a red lab? Mm-hmm. So she was raising a red lab as a, as a hunting dog. Mm-hmm. And when I found out about it, I said, Oh my God, I need to marry you. <laughs> and we hadn't even met on a date yet at this point. It was kind of like one of these tongue in cheek sort of things, but yet here we are. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be hitting f- our five year anniversary in March. Yep. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. We're actually both not originally from Colorado. Um, like I said, I'm from Texas. Uh, I actually moved to Colorado to do my um, internship and residency um, up at CSU and um, at a local animal hospital because I'm a veterinarian. So, um, oh, okay, I, I didn't know that. Here. Yeah, my family um, had already made the move, um, you know, during when I was still in college. And um, so when I tried to do my matching for my internship and residency, CSU was definitely one of the top five of the schools that I was trying to match with. Luckily I matched with them and I ended up falling in love with everything that Colorado had to offer and uh, yeah. stayed here and started my career here. And then um, a few years later met Lauren. And I'm actually a military brat and air force brat. So uh, my dad was on the missile side of the air force. And uh, so we got stationed in places like uh, uh, great falls, uh, Malmstrom air force base and mm-hmm. uh, Grand and uh, Minot and Vandenberg down in Southern California. And uh, so I kind of moved around a lot, but I spent more time in uh, in Montana than anywhere else. I, I consider Montana home, and that's where my parents ended up retiring to. Oh, okay. So they're they're up in Montana. and and but you, were you both in Colorado when you met? Is that is that what I'm gathering? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. So for about twenty years, um I was in uh, IT and particularly health information technology. And I actually ended up uh, moving from a CEO position at a startup uh, health information exchange up in Billings, Montana, uh, down here to Colorado to be the uh, state health uh, information technology director. Oh, okay. Uh, 
I, I'm, I'm getting the feeling you guys are both a lot smarter than I am. And so um, just, just, you know, keep that in mind as we talk, as I, we I, go forward here. <laughs> I doubt that. I'm, I've also, um, I'm, I'm going through my cancer journey, which has uh, very much depleted my intellect. So um, <laughs> I kind of dumbed down a little bit as far as my, my speech is concerned. So, but what, what was that you're going, you're, you're studying to do what now? Um, no, I'm actually a, <laughs> I'm in my now sixth diagnosis of cancer. Um, oh, wow. I've, I've been fighting cancer ever since I was 21. Um, and um, just recently got um, another additional diagnosis um, that they found a spot in my lungs, but um, I'm, I'm trying to get through having COVID uh, for the second time around in order to start my chemo. So. Oh, geez. Uh, That's yeah. a lot to carry. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of just become part of my story. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know what, it, what or who I'd be without having the cancer attached to me. Anymore. Yeah. That, isn't that, that's, that's an interesting perspective. Like that's, it's, I don't, I can't even imagine how, what that's like going through and, and you've had it, it sounds like for long enough that you feel like it's kind of like part of your identity in a way, huh? Yeah, definitely. Wow. So I've, I've definitely been lucky enough to be in remission several times. Um, so I've, you know, kind of gone through both sides of it, of uh, the recovery, you know, part and the trying to get back you know, to normal part, but I can't seem to last longer than three years in between diagnosis. So. Wow. Wow. I, I, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. And I mean, you've, you've had it now almost half your life. Yep. Yep. Wow. And so did you say on top of that, you've had, you've had COVID uh, twice? Yeah. I got it back in March and. Um, we all did actually. Yeah. The whole family did. Yeah. We oh, all did had and it was brutal back in March. And then um, my oncologist slash uh, internal medicine uh, doctor's office came, got um, diagnosed with it and they shut down. And I happened to be in their doctor's office uh, the, that Monday during that week. And I ended up getting it again from them. And oh, geez. Uh, I don't know if you heard about um, Estes having to completely evacuate back in October for the East Troublesome fire. But the fires. Yeah, I did. Uh, they end up sending basically the whole town of Estes um, who had a very, very low um, COVID uh, numbers yeah. uh, to all these different um, motels and hotels together. And then by the time everyone came back, we were one of the highest in the COVID cases. Um, <sighs> so that uh, fire wreaked more havoc on Colorado this year than I, I don't know. I mean, j- just the domino effect of, of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't mean to, I don't mean to like get off topic, but I'm, I'm super curious because there's been a lot of discussion lately about, um, catching COVID after you've already had it. And, and honestly, you guys are the first ones that's been on the show that I know of that has had COVID, um, with the exception of some guests that have had it since they've been on the show. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, it's, it's, it's like, I, I worry because, you know, I've, I've had, my mom's had COVID and now I'm worried, you know, I've heard that it's, it's worse the second time around if you catch it again. Uh, what, so you're saying the second one was a little bit more mild than the one back in uh, March. Yeah. For me, Con- considerably. Yeah, for me at least. I, I mean, I didn't really? have, 
cough really. Um, it, it just kind of felt like a really annoying um, kind of semi-severe cold. Hmm. Whereas um, the previous, you know, the very first time around, it felt like I was getting, um, you know, a very, very bad flu plus pneumonia um, all in one shot. And um, I know wow. Lauren and Lauren and the girls, uh, they, you know, they, they had a pretty bad cough as well um, back in March, but yeah, they, so if you think about it, it's just kind of like the flu, basically. If um, even if you have the flu once, you're still, you can still get it again, even though you have antibodies for that specific, you know, flu that you had, that doesn't mean that you're now immune to getting all flus. So it's, it's kind of the same thing with COVID. Um, even with the vaccine coming out, you know, it's, it's doesn't guarantee that you're not going to be able to catch a, a different strain of COVID. So, yeah, a lot depends on your level of immunity yeah. or your own immune system and how well you fight those things. And so yeah, for me, that you know, yeah. she got COVID the second time. There's a chance that I caught it. I didn't bother to go get tested. I really haven't had any symptoms. Um, so it, it could very well that be that, you know, it was simply the same strain and, you know, she's able to fight it better because she has some immunity to it from the first time. And I may just, I may either have gotten it or not gotten it. We really don't know. It's, um, it's been pretty in, inconsequential for me the first time though. I mean, it was, it was like there was sand in my lungs. I mean, for, for five weeks, we, we kind of fought through it. And then, um, there was like a couple of months worth of basically like, you know, hiking rehab where, you know, I'd go to the mountains and I'd take a few steps and I'd just, you know, it, it, it was hard to breathe. Really? Yeah. It, the lungs were still f- like, were they full of fluid and that kind of thing? Yeah. 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 And wow. just really, and there, there was a lot of scar tissue going on just from the, the cough. It was such a heavy, dry cough. It literally felt like, you know, I, I would always say it was like someone poured, you know, acid down your lungs and then took a cheese grater to it. It was just, <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible. I did not want to get COVID. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was not fun. And I mean, there's so many people that had it, you know, so much worse too. And um, yeah, it, so it, it just hits everyone so differently. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing. And, and like talking, talking about it, the, just a conversation, you know, where the, the country's talking about the vaccine and, and all this. And, and then, the, you know, there's that element that's been half politicized, you know, um, with it that, that is, I don't know why a, a virus would get politicized, but it has been. And, and, you know, on and on and on with that kind of stuff. But um, it, sometimes it makes me feel like I miss the times prior to COVID where we could just all, you know, gather and get together and have friends over and family and, and go to events and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I'm like wondering, you know, what, what does the future look like with this thing? How, how do we move on from this? So like, it, because a strain, it, it's, it's going to be a different strain. And it, it's going to morph and it's going to do this. And it's going to do that. And, and and I just don't know what the future holds. And I'm just, you know, hoping and praying that uh, we get some relief from this thing because it's it's just really uh, been super damaging, I, I think, to the country as a whole outside of the health thing um, in itself. You know, uh, it's a whole other, that's a whole podcast conversation in itself right there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the Spanish flu of 1918 is kind of a, a bellwether for us. I mean, it was yeah. what, like what? three years where they were, you know, going through similar effects of what we're going through. Eventually it just kind of subsided. There was enough resistance to it in the population that mm-hmm. um, it, it kind of waned and went away and was no longer an issue. Yeah. I mean, obviously was, this seems uh, like it's going to flu 10 years ago. 
Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's that's the thing. I've you know, if you look back through world history, the, it, you can average out the time spans of all uh, pandemics that were recorded, and it, it generally averages out to about eighteen months. Uh, and we're creeping up on that mark now, uh, and I don't, I don't see this thing just going away after 18 months. No, and it, it's like Lauren was just mentioning with the swine flu, and the re- I honestly, I think one of the biggest reasons why it was able to just run its course so quickly is because even though Facebook was, you know, pretty prevalent at that point, the political polarization that goes on within social media wasn't a huge aspect of Facebook. It was still just, you know, hey, I'm going to catch up with, you know, my friend from high school, you know, from 25 years ago. And that was just a Facebook at that point. So, um, you know, people weren't really using it as um, an avenue to, I guess, spread false yeah, there it was it was before everybody had agendas on social media, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the swine flu, people weren't wearing masks, people weren't, you know, self-isolating. You know, I mean, if they were sick, they were treating it just the same way they would any flu. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they'd spend a couple of weeks, you know, sitting at home blowing their nose and taking Tamiflu and and resting up, and then they go back to work like it was a normal thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. but with this one, we're spreading it out because you know, we're, we're isolating and then just, you know, we're having to come together enough to keep the spread continuing, which is allowing a longer, um, longer time frame for mutation. So mm-hmm. now we've got like three different strains that are running out there right now with COVID. And yeah. so now people, people are getting reinfected again. So it's almost like we're, we're perpetuating a, a longer cycle because of how we're treating it versus just like, you know, taking it on how the, uh, was a Swedish where they just basically got everybody exposed and then got herd immunity to it and moved on. Yeah. 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 They, they and they have like, yeah. they, it's, it's, it's crazy. I, <laughs> I swear, uh, Americans do some dumb things sometimes. <laughs> just, Oh man, I just, I hope there's an end in sight with this. And I, I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right. The, I think social media has a lot to do with that dynamic. Um, and I don't, I don't see how that's fixable either, um, which is frustrating. It, it's, it's definitely not because the people that can fix it are the ones that are making the most money off of it. So mm-hmm. they're not rushed to really fix it or to um, set boundaries like it should be. But, you know, like you said, yeah. that's a whole nother. <laughs> it is. I, I mean, I've thought about it. I just having a whole podcast on that, that topic because it's, it's, uh, everybody's thinking about it. It's always top of mind, you know, and everybody should be kind of thinking about it. I don't know. Uh, but I guess we should probably talk about elk. Yeah. That sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to know, Allie, you had mentioned that Lauren had kind of got you, uh, interested in, and intrigued with, with elk and the outdoors in, in that kind of sense, uh, not the outdoors. Cause you, you grew up, like you said, hunting whitetail and, uh, everything that happens down there in, in Texas, uh, which by the way, do you ever miss yeah. Texas? I, I miss so much about it. I miss, you know, the people, the, the places, the food mm-hmm. and the memories. It's just, it's definitely pure nostalgia for me. Yeah. Texas, there's something very nostalgic about Texas. And I, now I wouldn't live there because of the hunting situation uh, with elk and, and uh, you know, you know, other things, but uh, I do love Texas. I always have a good time in Texas. The people are great. Uh, like you said, the barbecue, the food uh, is 
yeah. just ridiculous. I'd be, I'd be super overweight if I lived in Texas. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, too. So that, you know, on top of the barbecue, we had the Mexican food was just, mm-hmm. out of this world. oh man. Yeah. Else. That's, that's pretty cool. So Lauren, how, how did, uh, where did the, the obsession with elk come from for uh, you? Well, my, uh, my dad, you know, took me out hunting from a very early age. And I mean, it started off on the, like I said, on the air force bases. And, um, you know, when I first started getting old enough to hunt, we were down in, uh, in Southern California, Vandenberg air force base, and we'd hunt blacktail out there and, and wild hogs. Um, uh, but then, um, when I was about 10, we moved up to Montana and, um, my dad had always kind of had a passion for, uh, you know, for the elk and, uh, he finally got an opportunity to start hunting them, but he never killed one right away. Um, it, it took a while before we finally, you know, got into a place that, uh, uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks had set up with the Seabin Ranch in central Montana. And, um, he got a cow tag, um, on this private ranch up there. And so for several years, he, he managed to harvest a few cow elk. And, um, I don't think he's ever harvested a bull, but he's always kind of had a passion for elk. And, um, he grew up, you know, reading, uh, uh Jack O'Connor on outdoor life and, uh, you oh, know, yeah. his old- and um, his passion for hunting really stems more from a passion of firearms. Um, he's a firearms collector and, and just, I mean, has an absolutely encyclopedic knowledge of guns, um, like nobody I've ever yeah. met before. Uh, <laughs> but my passion from it came from the hunting aspect. Um, you know, for him, hunting was a way to utilize guns that he loved. For me, guns were a means of um, getting out and, and actually hunting, which, which I loved. And so, um, I kind of took the, the elk passion from, from living there in Montana. But after that, we moved over to North Dakota, no elk. Um, so I, you know, kind of got a steady diet of, uh, fishing, waterfowl and whitetail and, um, learned bow hunting for the first time from a neighbor at, uh, Minot Air Force Base. Um, you know, guy that was kind of a mentor of mine, uh, 10 years older than me. And, um, he was a navigator in the B-52s, which there's not very many B-52 bases, but, oh, uh, wow. that's cool. Yeah, he, he taught me, uh, taught me how to bow hunt. He taught, taught me how to butcher deer, um, that, that we killed. And, uh, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really kind of a cool thing. And then ended up moving back to Montana, uh, when my dad retired from the Air Force um, as a uh, as a major with uh, 22 years in the service, and uh, and then kind of got right back into the elk again. Good deal. So uh, you know what we kind of we kind of glassed over we with uh, w- the platform of Good Bull Outdoors. Um, can you guys can we talk about Good Bull Outdoors and and like more on uh, what the objective is and and kind of it's it's a business so to speak, isn't it? It is. Um, okay. So we started Good Bull Outdoors first just as, as a means of sharing photos that we were taking. Yeah, um, I've, I've been doing photography since the film days. Um, I actually, when I was in high school, I wanted to become a wildlife photographer. And so with a, with a Canon um, AE-1 uh, film camera, I started taking, uh, uh, getting slide film and started building a slide portfolio. And then the digital revolution happened, unfortunately, right as I was at that stage of making a transition into becoming a professional photographer. And it kind of made the made it a moot point. It was really just awful timing. Um, so I kind of hung up the camera for a while. And, and Allie was actually the one who, um, you know, had seen pictures of mine that I had done um, just, you know, that I'd done years before and suggested that, you know, if I really love this, I should really go get a new camera and and go take some good photos. 
And so we started doing that. And that's kind of, you know, what started the impetus for going on social media. And, uh, you know, from there, it's, it's really kind of like, okay, well, why do we, why do we want to put these photos up there? There needs to be a reason for this. Mm-hmm. And part of it was to meet other people in the industry, um, other wildlife photographers, other hunters. Um, you know, if, when you're living in, you know, in or near bigger cities, you know, even a, even a place like Denver, there's still not that many hunters in the bigger cities. And it's a little bit difficult to, uh, you know, to really find your tribe, so to speak. So, sure, you know, we kind of is an outlet to try to meet, you know, other people with a similar mind and, um, you know, who liked hunting, who liked photography, like conservation. And it kind of grew from there to be, um, you know, now we sell, you know, prints, we sell digital, um, digital media, we do marketing, uh, we do social media management. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of blossomed from, from where it first originally went, but the original impetus is still there. It's, it's really to connect with like-minded people. Yeah. At, at what point did you guys move to Estes Park? We've been here since uh, the last week of August of 2020. So oh, you know, long you, enough to you ex- a little bit and then um, yeah. get evacuated from the wildfires. Yeah. We, <laughs> oh, jeez. We were, we were coming up to Estes uh, once, if not twice a week, uh, from Parker, which was an hour and 40 to sometimes two hours and 15 minute drive. Um, and we just knew that if we ever ended up leaving Parker, that this is where we'd want to end up. And we had this, you know, really um, fairy tale type mindset of, you know, what it was going to be like when we moved here, that uh, we were going to be able to, you know, get pictures every morning before work, every evening, you know, after work, we were going to be here right before, you know, the elk, really gets going. So we were super excited about that. But then, you know, COVID happened and the park decided to put uh, reservations on the entrance, the entries for, you know, the park to where that's where main, the main bulls that we really like to get um, videos and pictures of, that's where they like to run is, you know, in the park in this beautiful meadow. Mm-hmm. And they also restrictions on the meadow where people couldn't even walk out Um, into the meadow like we had been previously, Um, you know, so they just put all these crazy restrictions. And even though we were now only living eight minutes away from the park, we got less rut pictures this year than we ever have in previous years when we were driving, you know, upwards of two hours, um, you know, but both ways to, you know, come up here several times a week. So, Uh. um, but I mean, on the flip side, you know, we did get to go to sleep every night to, you know, a, a melody and lullabies of bugling elk all around our, our place. And we've gotten um, to know a lot of the bigger mule deer bucks that are around here that we had no idea were even here. So yeah, we've got a nice little eight by seven that, yeah. uh, that likes to, to call home right around our neighborhood. Yeah. Oh, really? So, Do you really? I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad you guys are incorporating the mule deer in there. I love mule deer. And so I, can you guys give people that, I, I think a lot of hunters know Estes Park and they, they are aware of it. And, and every once in a while they see a picture of an elk walking down the street. And can you give us like a, a bird's eye view of what it's like being in Estes Park with all the wildlife there? I mean, as a photographer, it's just awful. I mean, <laughs> we have to carry a camera everywhere. Yeah. Um, we get delayed every time we try to go somewhere. We tell our kids, you know, we're only going to be an hour and three hours later, you know, they're wondering if we're still alive. Yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, you know, a wildlife 
enthusiast dream, you know, to live mm-hmm. here. There's, you get, um, what's really awesome about the concentration of elk here in Estes is that they basically stay right around Estes all year round. So you're getting to see, you know, them all the way from, you know, them dropping their antlers to the different stages of them growing in velvet to them, uh, you know, shredding the velvet to the beginnings of rut to post rut, you know, them trying to, um, go back to, you know, getting that weight put back on. Um, and then it's really interesting. One thing that we really learned here was, um, that a lot of the bulls after, so during post rut, um, and in the winter, they're actually still sparring. They're still bugling. They're still trying to, you know, mate even. Mm -hmm. So all these interesting behaviors that normally people don't get to witness just because, you know, we kind of have it all at our fingertips. See, that's yeah. yeah, the vocalization. And that brings up a point, Allie, what, what you just said there. Um, I, I kind of would suspect that if when you live somewhere like that and you're so close to the park and they're also in town and and these animals are just kind of, you know, you're inundated with this this wildlife all around you like that. Educationally for a hunter, that's got to be super valuable. And I say that because my wife and I bought property um out, out where we live now, uh, I don't know, I've like lost track of time. We've been out here for about five years or so. And prior to moving out here, I was always such a mule deer nut that I knew nothing about whitetail. And I hadn't really hunted them. Um, it, they just weren't my thing. And so we move out of town and we only moved, you know, it's only 15 minutes to our old place. But where we live now, um, I've got whitetail in the yard, and they're constantly around. And I just sit and watch, and uh, I, I listen to them, and I study them, and I watch them, and 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 I really learned a lot about whitetail, and it's made me a pretty successful whitetail hunter. Which, if you would have asked me five years ago, I would have laughed at you. Um, and so, I, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on on having that kind of exposure to to these animals like that? Has has it made you guys better hunters? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's definitely made us better hunters. I, I think the issue that we have from a hunting perspective is um, we are absolutely just as fanatical about photography as we are about hunting. And we constantly have this push-pull, especially in September, mm-hmm. about, about going and hunting versus going and, and taking photographs. And, you know, we're, we're still raising raising our girls, and there's a limit to how much time we can have out in the field. And um, you know, unfortunately, you know, we, we, a lot of times it, it's like, okay, do we want to go hunting or do we want to go take pictures? And well, we don't have <laughs> enough in this rut, so let's go take pictures. So it ends up cutting into hunting time. So oh, you know, wow. our, our yeah. has not been as much these last four years since we've been running Good Bull, um, as it had prior to that. Um, we still generally kill a, kill deer every year. And, and for those that, uh, that, that don't know, despite the name, I, I personally have been a much more successful deer hunter than I have an, an elk hunter. <laughs> um, and, and so now you get to, you get out in the field and it's like this, this push and pull, huh? And, and, and you have a hard, I'd see, I, I've always been interested in being a photographer, but I've never been super passionate like you're talking about. And I have friends that are super passionate about being photographers. And, um, it's, I, I always think that, oh yeah, I'm going to go out and take some really good pictures. But I, when I, when I look at them, it's, you know, I, I'm just not that good at it. And I always wonder, like, how do those guys over at Good Bowl Outdoors, how do they get such good pictures? How, how does that even happen? <laughs> you know, and walk us through that a little bit. It's, I mean, 
I, I think that we are very lucky to be um, in this, this group of wildlife photographers and we're, we definitely have um, within our, our community, so many incredibly talented wildlife photographers amongst us. Um, I think one of the things that sets us a little bit apart from the others is our ability to find interesting moments, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, Lauren totally. Elf, I mean, he's he's phenomenally talented um, with photography, but we've also been had that added luck of being able to get in these really odd, uh, peculiar, you know, scenarios and being able to capture that either on video or um, through the camera. But I'll, I'll give you one example. I don't know if you've seen this video before, but we actually captured a cow elk um, chasing um, these geese and um, consuming part of a gosling. Yes, I did see that. I, I saw that that you I don't know where I saw it, but it was about a year ago or so when I first saw that. I don't know. Maybe yeah, it was last spring. Filmed it about a year and a half ago. I know um, uh, Nature's Metal uh, featured it um, probably six months ago or so, and it got almost a million views there. And um, it's obviously our most popular video on on our YouTube channel as well. Yeah, well, it's crazy. It, you would never think that a cow elk would would do that, and uh, it, it was it was mind boggling. I even showed my my girls. By the way, how old are your girls? They are teenagers. They're crazy teenagers. We have a fourteen year old that's about to be fifteen, and then we have a seventeen year old. So they. Uh, oh yeah, your your hands are full. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're they're actually <laughs> adopted from Colombia, so um, that, you know that's another aspect of our oh cool yeah but they're 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 awesome we're just you know dealing you know with daily teenage um trial and errors i guess teenage angst just normal stuff yeah Yeah, just normal stuff i i I know (laughs) so are they are they into photography and hunting like you guys are or they have they kind of taken a step back from that or our youngest one definitely is um both um she's in very much into the photography aspect of it. We actually got her, um, her own camera for her birthday this last year, but, um, and she's also, uh, been hunting with us several times. She had a turkey tag this past spring. Um, and her and Lauren both had, um, a buck tag in the same unit, but unfortunately we weren't able to hunt it, um, together because of the fire. So, um, but she's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Always, you know, always, always wanting to be, you know, out and about with us. Um, the older one was, um, you know, it started out hunting a little bit. Um, I think she would be a phenomenal Texas whitetail hunter where you're sitting in your blind that has Wi-Fi and heat and, you know, a coffee maker and everything. Snapchat and, yeah, and, and Instagram. And you're just sitting there. <laughs> all these bucks walk by and you're like, nope, nope, nope. Okay, bang. And then, you know, <laughs> You go take it to the barn and, you know, that that's the kind of hunting that I think she would really enjoy. Um, she's just not big on the five days of, you know, hiking several, several miles and to, you know, come back with nothing kind of is very disheartening to her. Um, she has gotten a doe before. Um, mm-hmm. She's that, that's kind of her her experience with hunting. She's. She'd much rather, you know, just kind of let us go and she'll hear the stories when we get home. <laughs> kind of right. Yeah. You know, she, that's kind of more, more up her alley, huh? Yeah, yep. yeah. She's 17. So, you know, she's, 
she definitely has um, the experience. Busy at 17. Yeah. 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 And she has the experience yeah. to know if, you know, later on in life she wants to, you know, dabble back into that or not. Yeah. We've, we've laid the foundation and, you know, it's just kind of a, a question of, you know, you till the, till the ground and, you know, see what grows and, um, you know, yeah, you know, for sure. And, you know, pushing anybody into hunting if they don't, uh, if they don't have an interest in it. Um, but, uh, you know, if she develops an interest later on, then I, I think she's got the foundation for, uh, for jumping back in it again. Yeah, definitely. You know, winter is a great time to get stocked up, geared up, and dialed in for this coming hunt, hunting season coming up in 2021. So I want to save you guys some money. And first off, let's start with Hoffman Boots. Hoffman Boots are the boot of choice at the Western Huntsman. And it used to be, Hoffman Boots used to be like this little North Idaho secret with their hunting boots. But these boots are great boots. They won't cost you as much as some of the other top name brands out there, but they are every bit as good. And to save it even a little bit more money, I want you to type in the promo code Huntsman10 to save you 10% off at checkout. Now, I got to give you a fair warning real quick up front with Hoffman Boots. They're, they're like six weeks out right now on orders uh, because everybody is jumping on the Hoffman Boot train and you should too. Next, I got Scree Gear, Extreme Mountain Gear. This high-performance hunting attire and gear is specifically tested for camel patterns throughout the North American continent and it's backed by a great company. Guys, Scree has a great history. I tested this gear all last season, and I put that gear through the ringer up and down, left and right, to and fro. Save you a little bit of money. Use promo code THEWESTERNHUNTSMAN at checkout to save you 15% off and free shipping. That's a hell of a deal. Check out Scree Gear. ScreeGear.com. It'll be in the show notes. Last and certainly not least, Phelps Game Calls, the choice, the selected call company of the western huntsman officially for 2021 guys there's some uh, big things happening with phelps game calls and i can't say enough good things about this company what a story started in a just like this workshop and now it's one of the premier hunting call companies out there on the market and if you haven't tried phelps game calls you're really missing out you you really are missing out on those diaphragm elk reads uh, they are amazing, and they will. The amp frame is an absolute game changer. Check it out at Phelps.com and use promo code Huntsman10 at checkout to save you 10%. Let's get back into the conversation, guys. Thank you to our sponsors, and thank you for supporting our sponsors. Here we go. So would would it be out of line for me to ask you guys uh, to like maybe solicit some very basic how do you, what are the, what are the basic foundational principles of, of snapping a really good outdoors photo? No, that's uh that's definitely a great question. So the um, first thing on everybody's mind is light. Um, don't take a picture in the middle of the day. Um, you're wasting your time. Um, early in the morning, late at night, when you've got that quote unquote golden hour light, um, the best scenario is if you can get the light hitting the animal and having, having a dark background. Um, if you look at our Instagram feed a couple posts ago, um, it was actually a photo that Allie took of this big mule deer and, um, it was standing in the light and right behind is just like jet black. And it just, it really makes the animal stand out. It almost makes the image look three dimensional. So, um, that, that's one way. And, and honestly, if you get good light, just about any camera on auto mode can take a good picture. Um, are you, are you talking about the mule deer with the, with the black background yes. photo? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you said elk. 
That is a cool picture. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, we, yep. we got lucky with that one. Yeah, Allie, Allie took that one. Um, and uh, she's actually learning more about photography. She's kind of going on the same journey, um, having me teach her some things about about photography and how to you know improve and get better photos. And, you know, one of the big things is animals are always moving around. So knowing your camera and its settings, um, I always shoot in something called aperture priority mode, meaning that when I change uh, the settings in the camera, um, the speed and the aperture or the, the depth of field that you're getting is going to, to vary. So you can either adjust one or the other and keep ISO the same. And obviously the, with the ISO, it's the, the highest quality image. Uh, the lower the number, the, the higher the quality of the, uh, the image. So we tend to shoot, um, if we can, at 100, um, but we tend to not go over 1,600 ISO. Um, if you go up hmm. ISO, like if you go from 100 to 1,600, you can take a much faster picture, which is important for wildlife, because if you're taking a picture any slower than about 1 200th of a second, um, the animal, if it's moving, it's going to look blurry. So yeah, so you need yeah okay to, to slow the animal down. You need enough light to do it. You need good light so you get that nice rich tone to it, and then getting the focus right on your camera. So if you can focus on on the animal and get a good, good sharp crisp image, then that's really critical as well. Another thing, yeah. That oh, go ahead, Ellie. I, I was just saying another thing that I would suggest um, for people that are really wanting to capture um, wildlife, you know, for the first time is actually taking um, some pictures of like your dog or your cat or, you know, whatever animal you have at home um, and getting, you know, different, um, you know, positions of that animal of it running and trying those different settings um, doing that. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. So that's, that's so Lauren ended up taking, you know, basically a full day out of his, um, you know, his, his picture day to actually just teach me. And that, was a game changer for me because I, I felt like I was basically wasting space on a card. Um, just not knowing exactly what I was doing and every, that's how I feel (laughs) once every 10,000, you know, shot I take is kind of lucky ish. But, um, now that, you know, he actually, he was actually able to sit down with me and teach me everything about the camera and different scenarios. And we went out onto the back patio and started taking pictures of stationary things. And we started taking pictures of um, like the traffic coming to see how well I could slow that vehicle down um, and actually get, you know, a crisp in focus shot um, all the way to, you know, our little terror of a puppy huck um, and, you know, him doing his, you know, crazy things. And that really helped me feel more confident when we were, going out later that day to um, feel like I wasn't going to miss, you know, this once in a lifetime shot just because I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, cool. So, and the, uh, which, okay, whoops. I'm trying to pull up this, your Instagram again, and I'm fighting my internet here, but. um, One of the things I mentioned about the light, it's one uh of Absolutely critical, especially especially for new people. You know, I said you got to get the light right. It's not just the time, but it's also the direction as well. Yeah. You you want the sun coming over your shoulder towards the animal. Okay, so not the other way around. So if because I, I guess I and one of the things I always I always question with for me now I don't have great equipment because when when I'm out there I'm either scouting or hunting and so I, I it's it's that's that's always what it is for me I, I I never have gone out specifically to take pictures but I'm not I, I think it would be fun it would be a fun time to especially you know take the kids out and and see what kind of pictures we can get because I I know where a lot of wildlife you know, where, where they're at, but I'll give you an example. Um, 
this last, I, I don't remember if it was during elk season or deer season, but I, I had kind of come down to the bottom of this mountain that I was hunting uh, out into this meadow. And in the meadow, there's like this um, kind of marshy area and a beautiful bull moose was standing in it. And it's super picturesque because it's that time of year when, you know, up up in this area that we've we've got these tamarack pines that all change color uh, right at that October-ish time frame. So you've got this mix of greens and oranges and the, and the meadows kind of got a lot of greens and oranges in it. And then you, then I've got this big bull moose and he's, he was a really nice bull moose. All I had on me was my, my iPhone, which it's a brand, it was a brand new one at the time. And it, it took pretty good pictures. Uh, but when I, when I looked at the pictures after taking that picture, it looked like I was a million miles away when in reality, I was only like 40 yards from the moose. Wow. Um, and, and so I'm just curious if, if there's tips you guys have, and, and this is like a selfish, selfish question, because I'm looking at one of your pictures. Uh, it looks like you posted it on December 23rd, and it's two bull elk, a um, couple little guys locking horns. And the, the elk from the, from the mane all the way down to the nose is super focused, and on, then the background is, is kind of blurred out. Uh, really epic photograph right there. Uh, really like that shot. And, uh, I like, how, do, how do you even get that? Um, obviously your equipment has to have a lot to do with that, right? It, yeah. it does. So really what you're talking about there is a, a difference in, uh, in the focal depth. So that's mm-hmm. yeah. your F stop. And, and, and again, just, you know, full disclosure again, guys, I, I know nothing about this stuff. I, I, I don't like some of the terminology that you're using, um, is, is beyond me in terms of the photography aspect of it. And I just know where the animals are at. And so, uh, it's, it's a little bit selfish. I want to learn how to, how to make, take some pictures like that. Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, really it's, if you have, I mean, a cell phone really doesn't do a great job at giving you the man, manual controls over, over your F-stop. It pretty much mm-hmm. everything automatically there. Nowadays, there are some, um, Androids and, and the, the newest of the, uh, of the iPhones give you some manual control if you go into your manual settings. So if you change your F-stop down to its smallest number, like I think that one was probably taken at F4, um, and we, we've got one okay. now that goes even lower than that. It goes down to F2.8, and it gives you a super narrowed fo- uh, focal depth. And that nice blurry view that you see in the background, there's a technical term for it called bokeh, B-O-K. Bokeh. So lenses that have a super low f-stop like f2.8 or um it's pretty expensive to get anything that's lower than f2.8 especially for wildlife photography um uh, most wildlife lenses only go down to f2.8 but um, they give you a really nice bokeh which is a really beautifully blurred background and a super crisp uh subject gotcha okay okay i know that you had mentioned that a lot of times you're you know either hunting or scouting and you know we we can understand from the aspect of how much equipment we have, um, how much heavier that can make, you know, a pack become, especially when you're out in the back country. Um, mm-hmm. Lawrence, um, his camera body and his uh, big, you know, zoom lens, which is um, a 150 to 500, 600. 600. Yep. Um, you know, those two things together is what, 15 pounds? About 15 pounds, yeah. 14 or 15 pounds. Just, just for the camera. That's a lot of weight. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that, that can be, you know, pretty heavy, especially when you're trying to pack light. Um, but one of the things I, I could definitely suggest, and I, I could be wrong, so Lauren may have to correct me, but, um, the Canon has, um, a, r- a really good line of, uh, less expensive cameras 
that was actually one of the ones that we got um, our, our youngest daughter recently. It's the, the Canon Rebel. Um, that's a really, really good lightweight um, starter camera, I think. Um, like the T7 or the yeah. T8. Yeah. Um, the, and you said it's a, the Canon Rebel or Rebel? Rebel. Yeah. 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 Like our, okay. Yeah. yeah, you really just need to think about the number. So the T7i or the T8i or the T7 or T8. Um, those are really good options. Another great option is um, the, some of the newer mirrorless ones that they've come out with. Um, the RP is a really light one, yep. and it's a mirrorless one. It's one that um, Allie's been shooting with a little bit lately. Yeah. Um, the Rebel is so much lighter yeah, than Yeah, the, the Rebel is even lighter than that one. The difference is, um, and this is a little bit of a technical detail, the RP um, is a full-frame sensor. So if you think about your, your cell phone, the sensor on it is about a quarter of an inch across. and a mm-hmm. uh, crop sensor uh, uh, camera, you're going to be looking at about a, a half inch across, whereas the sensor in um, in a full frame camera is going to be upwards of an inch across. And what that does is it gives a ton more data for the uh, uh, for the camera to be able to process the image. Um, so you've got much better low light quality. You've got the ability to go up higher in ISO, um, which allows mm-hmm. pictures later and still get good quality. Um, so you know if you're if you're looking at getting serious in photography, look for a full uh, a full frame sensor camera. Yeah. Okay, full frame sensor camera. I'm I'm writing some of this down as you guys are saying it because I'm not going to get super serious, but I I do want something better than a cell phone. Yeah. Um, so I, I I'm liking this Canon Rebel T7 or eight. Is that what I did? I write that down right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ooh, all right. Super, super light cameras and they're relatively inexpensive. It's it's a, a absolutely perfect starter for a lot of people who are just getting into uh, just getting into photography and want to learn more. Uh, once yeah. you bug, then, you know, you can start getting the getting something like the R5, which is really popular right now. Mm-hmm. That's um, almost four thousand dollars before you even add a lens to it. Yeah. Another, oh, geez. Yeah. Another thing, too, you can always start with a slightly older body and focus your um the, the the main expense on a really good lens. What? Yeah, you definitely. I, I spilled a little oh. bit of tea. Mm. Um, um, spend your money on the lens. Yeah. Um, and I mean, honestly, one of the things that I would tell people now, after having experienced the lens myself, if you really want a starter wildlife lens, get a seventy to two hundred f two point eight. Doesn't matter the brand. It can be it can be Tamron. It can be Canon. It can be Sony. You know, whatever brand of camera you end up going with. If you want to get an aftermarket one, um, if you want to get a used one, try to spend the money and get a seventy to two hundred f two point eight. It will absolutely knock your socks off how sharp the images are. The the IS two or above because it's got the image stabilization. Yeah, the image stabilization helps as well. But yeah. okay, getting that f two point eight, it lets so much light in, but then it also gives you that super narrow. Uh, focal depth, which gives you that you know really nice blurry background, it takes just just the sharpest images. Now the on the flip side of that, um, say that you are going to be uh, photographing elk here in Estes, that is a really mm-hmm. awesome lens to have if you're able to get within a certain yardage of them. But if you have to, you know, if you're put in a position to where you're more than what's the um, yardage that your big zoom lens comes that your telephoto lens comes in handy? Well, the, the big one is good for pretty much anything out uh, out past about 70 yards. Yeah, 70 yards. So oh, wow. there's a lot of times, especially during the rut, where, um, you know, in, in Estes, that those, the bigger telephoto lens come in handy. Um, but 
for the most part ever. So he got the the new one, the 70 to 200 back in May, and he's probably used that uh, profoundly more than he's used the the zoom lens. Yeah. I, I use that 70 to 200 now about 90% of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 50 to 600. So in the bag much more often. So I, essentially um, all of these are going to be an upgrade from my disposable plastic Kodiak. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> have to stop. I still have one of those. I still have one of those. I don't know where I put it, but I've, I've got it around here somewhere. Can you turn it into now, like Walgreens? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I've only taken like half the. I've had it for years. The film in it's probably not even any good anymore. If you're, I just. But I found it in a Let's, box. You should just find that and then go get it developed somewhere, and then you know have have a fun. Let's see what these pictures are of, you know, night. I know, right? That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's probably from 20 years ago. So that's pretty cool. Well, I mean, if it's um, college days, maybe you don't want to get it developed. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, um, let's switch gears a little bit here and, and talk. Uh, I'd like to talk some hunting with you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what? Uh, tell us a little bit about what what your hunting season looks like. Uh, Allie, I'd, I'd love to know how involved you are with hunting and, and, uh, you guys just kind of give us a, an overview of what kind of hunting you do and what you like to do and maybe some goals for the future. Yeah. Well, um, so we, we hunt anything from Turkey all the way, you know, up to elk. Um, we both have our, you know, our bucket list type hunts. Uh, for me, I, my dream hunt is to go hunt a Kodiak brown bear with a bow. Um, Lauren. Mm-hmm. interested in um some caribou hunting i'll, I'll let caribou them. and moose yeah. um yeah that's definitely high on the list i mean the the hunting that we're that we typically do i mean we'll start off with uh with turkey mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking about doing bear um i'd actually love to get up to idaho and, and try to chase um either idaho or montana and chase wolves um i think that would yeah you it's it i'm telling you it, it is if you ever need to be humbled go wolf hunting yeah uh, it, it is something else because uh, they they're they're crazy. I mean, and and I I live in wolf country, and and the the effort that I put into chasing and finding wolves is is pretty substantial. Uh, and and I'm just I'm pretty honest with my audience about it. I have never shot a wolf, and I have really tried. They they are it's so thick and brushy up here in the north country that. Uh, you can hear them, you know, they're around you. I, I've even had it where, where I could smell them, but you just don't see them. And I've only seen them a few times and it was so fast, yeah. uh, but you should. And, and obviously you, you'd have an open invite up here, up, up in North Idaho, if you ever want to come up and hunt wolves with me. Oh yeah. Um, there's something else. So I've, I've been elk and deer hunting and, and actually black bear hunting as well in Northwest Montana. So not too far from you. Um, I've hunted elk up in Tar. Oh Yeah. Um, which is just a little bit over the border. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So North Idaho is a lot like Northwest Montana. It looks, it looks very, I mean, if you didn't know what state you were in, you wouldn't know what state you were in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've, I've actually driven through there. So I have, uh, I still have family over in Spokane. So, you know, just a hop, skip and a jump across from you there. Yeah. Yeah. It's about 25, 30 minutes from me. Yeah. So I've got, I've got an aunt and uncle over there. Um, my family, my dad was actually raised over in Soap Lake, Washington. Um, so, oh yeah, yeah, cool. We passed Davenport there, so not too far. Yeah, yeah. and so we've we've traveled through the the Coeur d'Alene and Hayden area quite often. We, yep, yep. I'm 
Go ahead, Ellie. I was going to say, we also do quite a bit of antelope hunting as well. Pronghorn. Yeah, yeah pronghorn. Um, right. Are, do you, are, are you guys hunting? I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Is, uh, there's there's not a ton of antelope in Colorado, or is, am I off base with that? No, there's quite a few there's here. There's quite a few. It's, it's is there? A Wyoming-type population by any means, but um, they're, they're definitely around, but they definitely like to hang out, you know, on private um, pretty, pretty much here. Yeah. So are you, are you hunting, you're hunting pronghorn in right there in Colorado? Yes. Sometimes here, just, uh, just east of the mountains and the plains. And we've got some friends down in the Springs that uh, have property, um, out, uh, out east of Colorado Springs. And uh, we go out there and hang out with, with them sometimes and and go chase them. Nice. Um, I've also, uh, you know, hunted them with a bow up in Montana and rifle in Montana. Um, we chased them in Wyoming a couple of years ago. Um, Obviously, we hunt. What? Oh, go ahead. What? What is the bear hunting situation in Colorado? Is that a draw? No, there's. Uh, so they have uh, limited tags. So generally speaking, if uh, there's a lot of units where you can just get a tag, and they've actually outlawed uh, spring, spring bear hunting here in Colorado, going back way before we got here. I think twenty plus years ago, yeah. maybe thirty years ago now. Yeah, yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, and uh, it's just, I, I hate it. Uh, I mean, I really think that they should put that back in place. The The number of bears that are around is, is truly a problem. We saw the fall, I think we saw four black bears. Um, typically when we're hunting, we see, we see black bears every year. Mm-hmm. And yeah, even in Montana, that, that didn't happen. We didn't see them every year. Um, now it's that I, I think your your odds of of uh, getting a bear in the spring are uh, a bit better than than in the fall for sure and it's it's just a uh, it's an odd uh management decision to make in my opinion uh to get rid of the spring bear bear hunt but um yeah weird <laughs> I, think, I think the reason they did it lies very much hand in hand with how the wolf uh, initiative got passed and what are your guys' thoughts? Being in Colorado, what what is your thoughts? Um, you know, on this show, we we just go right into the weeds. Uh, so bear with me. But what are your thoughts on the Wolf Initiative that was passed in, in Colorado? God, these people are stupid. Yep. I <laughs> it, 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 The amount of power that people who will never, ever be directly affected by the reintroduction of wolves have the right to vote on something that it doesn't even impact them whatsoever. Whereas you hit the nail on the head, Allie. That, I mean, that. I, uh, sorry, did I cut you off there? We have a little bit of a delay here, so sorry about that. I, I just think it's it's ludicrous, and um, you know, I, you would think that people would actually take the time to research what ended up happening when they reintroduced it into the Yellowstone area, um, and actually really follow that research instead of just what happened right in the beginning. Um, to see yeah. the drastic, drastic amount of wildlife that has suffered. And not only that, people's livestock that has suffered because of it. And really take that into account before they just say, you know, listen to the, like the, was it the Sierra Club? Um, uh, Defenders of yeah, uh, um, Wildlife. Yeah, just there's, there's to, probably, Colorado had, had multiple uh, out-of-state agencies such as the ones you mentioned and Center for Biological Diversity. And, and uh, I, I, I want to, I don't want to misspeak, but I want to say the Humane Society had something to do with that. The Humane Society of America or whatever their, their national brand is. Uh, but, well, but it was, it was extensive. It was extensive. And it is just bizarre to me 
that uh, any state would would make management decisions on wildlife based on what people at the ballot box uh, go in there and vote for. Like uh, that doesn't make sense. People, you remember, you remember back in the, you know, before all the, the, the digital age, when you had, had to physically go to a video store and, and rent a movie and, uh, take it home. And then you'd have to physically drive that movie back and drop it off. And, and, and you remember if you'd go into one of those stores, people would spend hours trying to make a decision on a movie like imagine the consequences if they made a bad choice, right? And and, and those that is the, the those are the people that you want voting on a wildlife management issue such as that. It's 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 just bizarre to me. Um, and and I, I did dedicate a lot of time on the show uh, on the issue in Colorado uh, for that for that wolf initiative. You guys could see I, I kind of get fired up about this one. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can you can tell from the way we're talking, we do too. I mean, there's there are so many. Uh, so many examples that could have been used to explain why this was a bad idea. I mean, simply, simply said, uh, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife denied uh, the request to introduce wolves twice prior to this. Mm-hmm. To become a, yeah. became a ballot initiative, they were required by state regulation to not say anything about it. Yep. So the people who were in charge of managing wildlife were not allowed to tell the public how, um, how, how this would negatively impact wildlife in the state of Colorado. Isn't that nuts? Isn't that nuts? That that goes to speak, or that speaks to the idiocy of the, this decision making that that comes out of this. It it drives me crazy. So you've got now, and and you know, I always I always say this as as kind of a you know, I, I don't want people to think that I'm some wolf hating. Um, I want them eradicated off the planet kind of situation because I'm not one of those guys. I really enjoy wolves. Uh, I like I, I actually like having them on the landscape if they can be managed. And and but the the reality is they're extremely difficult to manage. Um, it, it is it is to a point in Idaho. I, I don't know why how the the state of Colorado didn't just look at the state of Idaho and say, okay, holy cow, they they were supposed to have three to five hundred wolves, and uh, they're so difficult to manage. They're north of fifteen hundred now. Um, and that is that takes a serious toll on our wildlife, and it, it changes the behaviors of what the elk and the deer do. It changes their their wintering habits. It, t- it changes their their migration corridors. Uh, and this this thought process of people that live in like downtown Denver that like like Allie was saying will never have any real exposure or impact from the wolves. What they don't understand is the magnitude of the impact for people that live in places like Estes Park, and and the ranchers around there, and and the people that. Um, live in these areas where, and specifically the wildlife that lives in those areas that have to take the brunt of that. It's not fair. It's, it's, it's a bizarre way to manage wildlife. And and another thing on top of it too, is the fact that when people try to use um, the management of the growing population of elk, especially like in the Estes Park area as a reason to bring these wolves in, but yet they won't provide any um, harvesting initiatives for those animals is just ludicrous. Why would you bring more animals in that directly impact so many other things negatively instead of just allowing some of that population to be hunted and harvested in a very, Mm -hmm. you know, a non just gruesome way as being, you know, eaten alive just for fun. Um, 
in your guys's opinion with your experience photography uh, with photography and being hunters and and just really soaking up the the, the Colorado landscape the, the way that you guys do um what in your is there would there in your mind be anything wrong with giving archery tags within the park outside of the fact that it's a it's a park no, and I, I mean, I think if you look at history, most of the parks used to encourage hunting at certain times. Um, Yellowstone mm-hmm. used to have a hunting program. Um, and I think yep. it actually leads to um, a healthy population for the animals. There's, there's too many cow elk here in the, the Estes Valley. Yeah. And they're, they've done Colorado, uh, Parks and Wildlife have done plenty of studies to show the negative impact that the elk have had on the, uh, the vegetation in the valleys. And if you go into Rocky Mountain National Park, you'll actually see areas that have been fenced off to allow uh, for the native vegetation to have footholds where the animals can't feed on them too extensively. Um, And unfortunately, you know, look at Yellowstone. um, The elk have migrated, um, especially around into the mammoth area. Um, They use people to protect themselves from the wolves. The wolves are obviously nervous to be hanging out around the people. Uh, Mountain lions will come into town at night. Wolves will not. And so the animals have, if they come into the cities, if they use people for protection, they can essentially hide out. Um, They've done it in Yellowstone. Um, They're going to do it here in Estes. And if they introduce wolves, there's going to be pockets of elk that are moving in and becoming suburbanites that are not going to be impacted by the wolves. So you'll still have problem elk, but yet now you're going to have this other areas uh, of the park, um, you know, the more remote areas where elk are going to be non-existent. They're going to be devoid. Um, and it's going to happen mm-hmm. across Colorado. Every wild area is going to be devoid of wildlife. And, and if you look at Yellowstone, Yellowstone's uh, northern elk herd um, dropped by 90% um, up until the point that they reduced uh, elk tags in Unit 311 north of the park uh, by 90%. Then the elk started mm-hmm. coming back. And they started coming back because the elk were hanging out on private land north of the park where they were protected by ranchers. And now there's still elk in the park, but there's so many fewer than, than when, you know, I grew up in Montana before the, the wolves were introduced. Um, you look at the Lolo herd over in your area, they've also dropped 90%, but they haven't had a rebound. And they haven't had a rebound yeah. because it, it's more difficult to hunt. There's more predators. So, you know, much like Dr. Geist was talking about on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, you end up with these dead zones where essentially even if the wolves are not as prevalent anymore, the other predators are keeping the recruitment down to the point where the, the herd simply cannot rebound. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna say we're, we feel the same way with you. It's not like we don't feel like that um, species should, you know, have a chance to flourish, but there's so many other places within, you know, the lower 48 um, that, they could probably, you know, reintroduce without them having such a direct impact to not only um, people, but other wildlife, um, domestic animals, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, And there's also places, you know, in Canada where they could be, go back to, you know, their roots, basically. Yeah, essentially that you're, you're right with that. And the, the real dramatic thing that happens in like the Rocky Mountain region is, is the Rocky Mountains are, are such like this ice, uh, this regionally isolated set of mountains that they, there's nowhere for them to go. And so this, this theory that, that people that vote for or promote the, the reintroduction of wolves throughout the Western United States, what, what they kind of fail to realize, um, along those lines, 
when, when you try to put it into the perspective of we're going to let nature work itself out and it's nature's going to take care of nature. We just need to naturally allow them to go into their own, you know, habitats that they used to exist in. Well, that the, when they existed there, we the, the civilization, we weren't here. We were not here. We didn't have freeways. We didn't have Estes Park and, and Colorado Springs and Denver and, and Boise, Idaho, and, and all these corridors in between that, that cut off the animals from winter migration patterns. And not to mention the, the reservoirs and, uh, and, and, and everything that, that the humans have had an impact on. What, what we had here were Native Americans that, that they did their own source or, or um, they did their own sense of wildlife management that was very effective and, and they knew how to keep these animals in check. So it was not without human inference, inter- interference. I'm, I'm getting so excited. I'm trying to talk too fast and uh, not, not talking right, but <laughs> that, that is an important aspect that a lot of Coloradans I don't think realized is this is not the Colorado. This is not the Idaho. This is not the Wyoming and Montana of a hundred years ago. It's, it's just simply not. And, and the idea that a hundred years ago or 200 years ago or 500 years ago, these animals managed themselves and maintained a balance. That is a fantasy. That is not what happened. That is absolutely not what happened when native Americans were not managing those animals and keeping those numbers in check. We had terrible predator pits. And, and that's what Dr. Valerius Geis was talking about. And what, what you had just alluded to Lauren in uh, unit 10 and the, and this Lolo area up here in Idaho, the wolves came in and devastated the wolf pop or the elk populations and they moved on. And now the black bears and the grizzlies, they, they have basically taken the, taken the place in there every time, you know, during calving, calving season, these, these black bears are so proficient at that. Uh, they take out all the calves. And so I think it's like the last number I read was somewhere less than 10% of calves survive in the Lolo unit because of that. And there's no, there's no recovery. There, there's no recovery. There's no way to recover from that. Yeah. And you have to hit it. I mean, in order to maintain a population, you've got to keep that calf recovery at 20 to a hundred. So 20 calves per hundred cows. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And anything less. Yeah, great point. Have a uh, decline in the population. Yeah. So, and then here's another theory. They're constantly complaining about Estes Park being overrun with especially cows. You know, that was something Lauren had mentioned why aren't they ma- help managing that by removing some of the cows here and then putting them, um, you know, in, in that area to help, you know, the, that grow. Yeah. We could, we could use them up here in Lolo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's plenty of places that they could be easily relocated to. I mean, but if, if that's a, if, if there's a money issue there, we've got a, a natural um, solution for it. It's called archery hunters. Yes. Super yeah. able to simply give out tags for the Estes Valley and reduce the number of uh, the number of uh, cows that are um, that are inhabiting the area. And believe it or not, there there are people that do hunt here in the valley. Yeah. Um, they do give out some tags, and there are some properties that allow hunting. Um, we've seen some uh, some hunters harvest cow elk right on the edge of uh, right on the edge of town. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like it doesn't happen. It's just I don't think it's quite done to the level it needs to to maintain a, a healthy balance. I just look at it like, you know, you, you, you make such a good, sensible point. I don't know that the state will ever go for it. But, uh, yeah, you know, a, a really good example is we had a whitetail problem up here in uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, on the airport. And so what they did is they brought in archery hunters uh, to take out some of the white the whitetail. And they, they were coming onto the runway, and these, you know, it's just a little 
it's a little teeny airport, you know, mainly single engine planes that are coming in and out. And you can imagine uh, the devastation that is caused by hitting a deer in a single engine airplane going down the runway. So um, problem solved. I, since they did that, I have not heard that has not been in the news to my knowledge since they did that. Uh, and they're going to have to do it again eventually. Sure. Uh, but that that seems like such a simple and sensible and rational way to manage the elk problems in Estes Park outside of the fact from, you know, above the fact bringing in wolves because Colorado already there. And I don't know if I don't know if it's 100 percent confirmed or or what, but there is a pack of wolves up in northwest Colorado. Is that not right? It, it is confirmed. Yes. Um, they've taken a samples from from scat from the. Uh, from the wolves up in the northwest part there. And um, there's some question about how permanent they are. They, they may go back up into Wyoming and, and come back down, but um, they've they've generally agreed that they spend most of their time uh, now chasing that that herd of, uh, of elk that lives uh, north of uh, north of Craig. Um, there's a migratory yeah. out there as well. So there's, there's a lot of elk for them to chase um, and a lot of ground for them to cover out there. That's why they're not seen very often. But um, I, I want to say there were either six or eight wolves out in that pack. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm concerned. I'm concerned for Colorado. Colorado is uh, one of those places. I think that there's not a Western hunter um, on the planet that doesn't periodically think or dream about going down to Colorado after, after those huge mule deer or after the uh, 200,000 plus elk that, that reside in the state. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just this, this, this place where, the, the magic is just there. Everything kind of comes together with the Rocky Mountains and the Plains and, and, and how everything just kind of comes together for Colorado makes it an outdoorsman's uh, paradise. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm concerned that that's in jeopardy with the coming of the wolves. And, and I guess we can leave it at that. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think one thing that, that I, I want to say about it as well is that um, Colorado has expended significant effort to try to increase the uh, shearest moose herd. Yeah. And all of that effort is now going to be in vain. I mean, 25 mm-hmm. of conservation efforts, the population has significantly increased. And if we look everywhere that wolves have been introduced, moose are in serious trouble here in Colorado. And that, oh, for sure. That's another thing too. Like you mentioned, we have, you know, over 200,000 elk here. There's, I know we talk a lot about the prevalence of them in Estes, but in reality, there really only a lot of town, quote unquote, town elk in Estes and possibly some around the Evergreen area. So the majority of that 200,000 elk are in wild places. Yeah. And there are, yeah, great point. There aren't that many wild places left in Colorado. If you think about how many people have, you know, encroached myself included in, in into Colorado, it's it's really phenomenal to think about how many mm-hmm. are unseen by the human eye of that 200,000. So it's a yeah, that that's a great point, and and it's you know when you look at Colorado on a map, it's a it's a rather large state, but you got to take a certain percentage of that. What is what is national forest? What is elk habitat? Um, because I know there's some areas in Colorado that that is not elk habitat, and so the wolves are not going to be out in those areas. They're going to be where the elk are at. Right. And one of the things that the Idaho Fish and Game made mention of prior to releasing wolves here in Idaho 
was the fact that their primary food source was going to be mule deer. Well, that is not the case. Their primary source, food sources, is elk. And and that's why uh, you, you could take a look at, and and I know, I don't, I don't want to pick on the Idaho fishing game because I, I actually really like the Idaho fishing game. I think they do a lot of really good things. Um, and it, and it, and it wasn't them that released the wolves. It was, it, but it was their statistical data that kind of helped guide the, the initial management of it. And, and I think that they did the best that they could given the facts that they were given on the ground, because in the Western United States, in modern day times, we don't we don't have the information, the know how to manage wolves. This isn't Alaska. This isn't Canada. There's a lot of different uh, nuances to this area. And so, um, anyways, the, the the point being is, you're exactly right. Where where the elk are congregated in places like Esses Park, and uh, I think you mentioned Evergreen. Um, those areas are, they're going to be impacted by wolves for sure. And, and I think what, what's going to happen is the impact is going to be, it's going to drive those more wild uh, backcountry herds down into places like Estes Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the problem that is there now is going to be amplified. Uh, and that's what's happened here. We see, we used to never see elk on the agricultural interface of Idaho. They, they rarely came onto the, the farms, the ranches. Uh, it was it was just not something that happened until the wolves pushed these elk down onto these agricultural areas and the cows figure out, hey, this is a pretty safe for me to have calves and I don't need to go back into the back country. Uh, and and the, and now, especially in, in uh, the, the far northern pan, like the unit one area, that's that's a big issue. The elk don't leave the agriculture anymore. They're there all summer. They're there through the rut. Uh, and, and it's a problem. They never they, they were not like that 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, the the resident herds have definitely moved down lower. You know, one of the mm-hmm. things I wanted to make mention uh, an argument against uh, introduction of wolves into into Colorado, and you notice I said introduction, not reintroduction. Um, this mm-hmm. this is not a reintroduction. The wolves that they're bringing in were not here before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wolves that were here before were much smaller and much more, um, yeah, much much closer to the Mexican wolf, which is kind of my point here. We have an endangered species called Mexican uh, gray wolves. And the Mexican mm-hmm. wolves are much smaller and are not going to be able to compete with the ones that, that they're bringing down from Canada. So, no. And, and the, the Canadian gray wolf will annihilate the Mexican gray wolf. Exactly. They, they will annihilate because they're, they're in Arizona and, and they're going to naturally, they're going to move north. The Canadian gray wolf, once released into, into Colorado, is going to move south. They're going to intercept. And um, that is not my opinion that is what is factually documented as to what will happen to those Mexican gray wolves. So all the work that they put into the Mexican gray wolf, which is a uh, much less, uh, I don't want to say they're less aggressive. They're, they're still a wolf. They need to eat. Uh, but, but they're not the prolific predator that the Mexican or, or I'm sorry, the Canadian gray wolf is. Uh, and, and so it, it, it could be argued that the Mexican gray wolf is a manageable wolf to have on the landscape. The Canadian gray wolf is a different story, and, and you have a couple of challenges there. And and some of the challenges that Colorado is going to see are, are, are going to be two things. You're going to – well, more than two things, but the basic things are the elk that currently live in Colorado, once those wolves are released, will not know what to do with those wolves. They don't see – they will not immediately see them as an imminent threat. That's what happened in, in Idaho. So those, those wolves initially really had a, a, a very – 
major negative impact on our on our elk populations because the elk didn't adapt to them. They didn't know they had to adapt for them or to them. They they didn't know they were there. The second thing goes that the same could be said for the human population. People in Colorado do not know how to hunt or trap wolves. So once you get past the years of litigation from pro wolf organizations, it's going to draw the wolf issue into the courts. And while while that is taking place, the wolves are breeding at a rate of about 43% per year. Um, their, their population is going up, it's skyrocketing, and then bam, all of a sudden they can release it or, or remove it from um, whatever control mechanism that the state is going to use to determine that they can now have hunting and trapping seasons in the state of Idaho, or I'm sorry, Colorado. Nobody's going to know how to do that, and that's what happened to us in Idaho. Nobody knew how to trap wolves. Nobody knew how to hunt wolves. We had to bring experts in from Alaska to teach us. Uh, and and even after that, I, I've, I've spent lots of time hunting wolves. I still haven't been able to get a wolf. Uh, they're, they're extremely well, cunning. And so those are, you, those are major problems. You mentioned, what, you mentioned what happened with the courts up in Montana and Idaho. It happened in both places where they, they initially agreed to a, um, a reintroduction level of wolves, and then they kept suing until they got it higher and higher and higher. What needs yep. to happen here in Colorado, if they want to stop wolves from coming in, we need to get a group like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to use an, uh, basically to sue the state of Colorado um, under the Endangered Species List or Nature Species Act uh, in order to prevent the introduction of wolves into Colorado of threatening the, uh, the Mexican gray wolf's uh, recovery. Yeah, and there, I, I would imagine that there is a pro-Mexican gray wolf organization that would have to see the implications of having a, a Canadian gray wolf on the landscape. There, there's got to be that that would that would partner up with something like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I, I would think that common sense would guide that. Unfortunately, I, I just don't see it happening. Whoops. Yeah, there we I, go. I, mean, I don't I, know. It's a tough. It's such a tough situation. <laughs> I don't think that. I don't think that the recovery of the endangered species, which is all subspecies of wolves, is the goal of these organizations. And I, I think you've probably heard this echoed many places that there are ulterior motives that are going on with the introduction of wolves. Absolutely. Um, decreases in, in hunting because there's not as many tags. There's not as many, there's not going to be as many hunters on the landscape. Um, essentially we are hunters are, threatened by this in the same way that the native Americans were with the uh, slaughter of the bison on the plains. Mm -hmm. Yep. You're exactly right. There's, there is definitely something to be said for that. Um, no doubt. Uh, I don't put it past them. People that want to sit back and act like that's some crazy conspiracy theory. Uh, <laughs> well, you're going to see how much of a conspiracy theory that is here in about 10 years in the state of Colorado. Yep. Yeah. Guys, I know I'm keeping you a long time. Um, that's what happens when we start talking wolves on the Western Huntsman podcast. It gets uh, a little saucy on here. So, um, no, we're where can you can you guys tell us where can people find good bull outdoors? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we're Good Bull Outdoors on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we also have a YouTube channel. It's a little bit light right now, but we're going to be adding some videos to it soon. Um, we actually did a really interesting uh, uh, video with um, backcountry hunters and anglers on their hunting for sustainability program. So we're mm -hmm. working on editing that and, and we're going to be putting that up. 
Um, they, they showed that at their virtual rendezvous for uh, some of the managers uh, that are looking to, to start their own hunting for sustainability program. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've got uh, goodballoutdoors.com that goes to our, uh, to our link tree that's got a few discounts on there. Um, we just recently got a, a discount code from Mountain Ops for free shipping. So um, if you do uh, Good Bull Outdoors, you, you get free shipping at, uh, at Mountain Ops. Um, do you guys have a recommendation on, on Mountain Ops, somebody that wants to get started using those products? Oh, absolutely. Oh, geez, so many things. Um, probably the, the best deal going right now is um, they have a, uh, a free deal with their Ignite, um, which is kind of mm-hmm. like kind of like an energy drink, but you can get a, a tumbler and several um, packets of the Ignite uh, for free. All you have to do is pay for the shipping. Um, gotcha. Cool. Um, use the, the free shipping code. Maybe you get it absolutely for free. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for me, there's been so many of their products that have actually really done a lot of benefit um, for me during not only hunting season, but just everyday life going through the chemo and everything. Um mm-hmm. Eva Shahi even has her own line through there that she, um, you know, for all the women and, and men too, it's very beneficial for men and women both to have the collagen um, peptides, you know, kind of added in. It's flavorless. You just add it in. We add it into our coffee in the morning. But um, one of the biggest benefits I've seen from that, um, aside from, you know, helping with the hair regrowth and uh, nails and stuff like that, that chemo just totally obliterates is um, I'm not as sore when I do um, go out on hikes or hunts um, and uh, I'm, I'm still, even though, you know, Lauren and I've been hunting together for um, four, four years now, um, I still don't feel like I'm at that level of um, beast mode that, you know, I technically should be being a Western hunter now instead of a Southern little whitetail hunter, but it definitely, definitely helps. <laughs> you're you're going to have some Texas hunters that are going to cringe at that statement. <laughs> I know, but they, they, they know what I'm talking about, but they also, unless they've actually hunted out here or not necessarily out here, but done Western, you know, big game hunting, it's a completely different eye-opening experience that um, totally uh, just redirects your whole idea on hunting and everything that you yeah, become so absolutely. much um It's, you're just so much, you're just hungrier for every little thing that you are able to achieve regardless if you harvest or not, because you put so much mental and physical, um, you know, acuity and, and boots on the ground and, you know, everything It's it's just so much for me. I, and I started hunting, you know, at at 12 with my own tags and was going, you know, with my brother much younger than that, um, down in Texas, but it's just so much more fulfilling for me doing Western hunting now. Um, than it, it ever was, you know, in Texas, just because of how much more work and that, that goes into it. Um, yep. Yep. Know, not, not everyone in Texas hunts from a blind. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, hunt on the ground, but, or, or from a stand and stuff, but yeah, it's, no, there's some, there's some tough hunting in Texas and, and all that. But I, you know, the thing that they always say in Texas is everything is bigger, but I say, except the mountains, and yeah. uh, when you when you come out to the west, you'll you'll see what we're talking about. So don't take offense to it down there. Yeah. So so Jim, one of the things that I actually should probably tell you is I used to actually be somewhat of a, a supplements naysayer. I used to think mm-hmm. it was complete BS. You know, the idea of taking supplements and it actually helping you on the mountain. I'm like, you know, you get plenty in your diet. That's you know, it's just ridiculous. You know, the, all these you know really uh, you know high end supplements that that people are buying and taking. 
I, I'm a convert actually. Um, and, and I was a convert specifically because Allie had gotten some and had given me some on an archery hunt up at uh, about 12,000 feet out, uh, out near Vail. And I mean, for the first time, like on a really long hike, I wasn't cramping up. Um, oh, good. that's been one of the biggest things for me is like the Yeti and the, and the, the nice. ignite for mountain ops. Um, I'll take it on a hike and I'm actually not cramping at the end of the hike and not just at the end of the hike, but like the next day, my legs actually feel better. Um, my, my last archery hunt, uh, here in, uh, in unit 20, um, just outside of Estes, I put in, in a nine and a half mile hike and climbed 4,000 vertical feet, um, in about eight hours. Wow. That, yeah. and so I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I know I've got a lot of naysayers in the audience when it comes to uh, supplements and stuff like that. And I'm not, I, w- I am not a naysayer and I'm not a, um, a yaysayer. I, I don't really have a lot of opinion. I've used them. And I like them when I do use them, uh, but I, I've never gotten uh, the full experience, I think, because I haven't used them consistently enough. So I'm glad to hear you say that. I need to up my supplement game for sure. Yeah, definitely. If you're going to be going on a long hike, try hydrating with like Yeti or or Ignite if you need a little more of a pickup. Um, I tend to drink a lot of coffee, so I tend to lean more towards the Ignite because it, it gives you a bit of a caffeine boost. Um, oh, okay. The Yeti is uh, is great for hydration. If you take it when you're not working out, you'll you'll go to the bathroom a lot. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's a great pre workout. It, it, it's actually what I I prefer um, when we're you know hiking and everything because it just really helps with the um, hydration aspect as well. Yeah. But, okay. Good. Good. Good to know. To eliminate the the cramps that that I get from putting in an absolutely intense workout, uh, man, I I just I've I've absolutely been converted. And the flavors uh, are phenomenal. Yeah. I I don't know how they how they make the flavors so so great, but they have they have geeky little scientists that figure that out. It's you know they I the stuff like you you guys remember hunting you know back in the day before we had these cool supplements and and things like Peak Refuel and and yeah. all these other other things. You know I, I I remember going out with stale peanut butter and jam sandwiches and. And uh, life is so much better these days. And we have things like uh, Onyx and Basemap and, um, you know, just stuff. Yeah. Uh, being a hunter these days is a lot more comfortable. And uh, those supplements help us recover faster and, and stay on the mountain longer. And, and uh, it's just a, it's a great day uh, to be a hunter. Absolutely. You, you know, you might actually enjoy this little bit of a backstory. So, and, and I'll just mention, I've probably hunted more days in ripped blue jeans than I have in, uh, you know, in any other type of clothing. Me too. Uh, but, but the backstory is um, kind of like how the whole digital mapping thing got started in the, in the outdoor space. So on X is from Montana and they kind of like got the whole thing kicked off. The reason they did was something called the Montana Catastrophe. So Montana pulled together all the GIS information from across the state and they made it available in a map that not very many people knew about, but I found out about it before on X even started. And I, took screenshots on my computer of the maps, the land ownership maps that were uh-huh. colored. And I had them printed off down at Kinko's or whatever, you know, printing place. <laughs> and I actually <laughs> went into these different areas um, that had very limited access, um, just a little bit like little strips of public land that like crossed a road. And I had like, you know, one of those early, uh, one of the early GPSs and I would go along and I would print off um, Google Earth and I would print off this Montana Catastral and I would compare it on my GPS until I found the crossing point. Gee, that's brilliant. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's 
basically the same thing that, that the guys at OnX did, but they took all this cadastral information and they married it up with what was already on the GPS. Uh-huh. So you, you put it on a chip or download it directly into the GPS. And that's kind of how this whole thing um, originated was the Montana cadastral where they, they put all this information up on maps and made it available, but nobody was using it for hunting. Now I, I go online and I see photos of people that are, you know, killing animals in areas that, you know, I used to, you know, have all to myself because everybody thought it was private land. Yeah, yeah that's brilliant. I wish, I wish you and I would have been hunting buddies back then. Uh, cause I avoided, I avoided hunting anywhere near public land, just terrified because I, I didn't want to be, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a trespasser and cause my family's got a yeah. ranch and I remember, you know, growing up how big of a deal it was if somebody was trespassing on the, on the property. And, and so I never wanted to be one of those guys and, and, uh, I needed, I needed you like 20 years ago, man. So I'll, I'll leave the, the ranch's name out of it, but I went into one of these properties that had probably about three sections worth of land. And it only has two areas where you can access it on a, on a public road. So mm-hmm. one area at the far south end and one area at the far north end. And the, the area that it crosses the road is maybe only 40 yards wide at each point. And oh, wow. So with the with the GPS, I managed to find this place, go back in there, and I killed a 32-inch wide muley, a, a big old three-by-four um, that probably field-dressed, I want to say, right around 250 pounds. He was a beast. That <laughs> is a beast. And I killed him, like, <laughs> maybe three-quarters of the way from – I parked at the southern end, and I hiked about three-quarters of the way up, killed him in a coulee, and figured it would be easier for me to hike out the northern end. And I'm hiking down the road with the with the uh, the antlers over my head, like I caped it out, and uh, and I'm hiking down the road, the the public road with the antlers over my uh, over my back, and the the rancher um, comes, you know, hauling tail down there with his pickup, and <laughs> pulls off cross in front of me and confronts me about where I'm hunting, and I literally set my my pack down, pull out the paper sheets that I had printed off. And I showed him where I parked and where the public crossed the road. And then I showed him where I, where I crossed up above and got back into it. And he's, wow. And he looks at it and he looks at me and he's like, I, I've never seen anybody do this before. <laughs> That's a great story. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. No, that, that is so cool because that was such the challenge back back then, and and uh, nowadays I I don't even know how I hunted back then without without these map these mapping systems on your phone. You know, I, I never would have never would have thought this this kind of technology would be available. So, and you guys have uh, some sponsorship stuff going on with Onyx, don't you? Yeah, yeah, we do. They've uh, so we've actually. I mean, I've been I've paid for Onyx since they came out initially because I was in Montana when they just had Montana. Um, Start so with I, the chip. Yeah, so so with the you know with the download and the and the they they had both a chip and a download. So um, I just got the download from them and I loaded it onto my GPS um, when they first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was probably with them for I think twelve years before uh, before they ended up uh, sponsoring us. They they found out about us and and that that I used um, and had been a longtime customer of of Onyx and, and basically they just, um, they give us the, the application for free now. Um, but oh, we still do awesome. the same way we did back then. Yeah. Good deal. Yeah. They've Good really deal. Out, especially here in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, one of the things that we're definitely um, really looking forward to in the next 
year or so is trying to figure out how we can do some uh, photography tours here in Estes. Uh, we've been kind of in the the beginning stages of trying to plan that out and figure out how, you know, we can merge that into everything else that we do. Just being able to, you know, have a, like a husband and wife thing where we're able to, you know, do the things that we're passionate about. Also share them with everyone and, you know, work together on things that, you know, we love doing. It's just been. A, that would a, be cool. Yeah. If, if you guys get that going, I like me and my wife, we'll, we'll come down there and do the photography tour. And then you guys come on up to Idaho and we'll, we'll go chase a wolf. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like it. That sounds like, like a, that sounds like a, a good trade off, right? Yeah. yeah we can do a great trade off there. Yeah. yeah. Well, kind of what we're talking about is a, a combination where we, we take people out and we show them the animals, but then we also show them how to use their camera to get the best pictures. Kind of like what we talked about earlier. So yeah, like, I need that. yeah like the training that I did with Allie to actually like, you know, talk to her, you know, while we're photographing animals and go through the different settings and, you know, changing the f-stop, this is what it's going to do to the scene. Um, actually doing that, you know, live with the animals. And then, you know, once you have your pictures for the, for the morning, you know, coming back and, and sitting down on your laptop and going through the photos, talking about what went right, what went wrong, editing the photos and, and getting them, you know, super sharp and crisp and, you know, bringing out the colors the right way in, in Lightroom and then going back out again and for the evening and getting more photos. So, um, you know, kind of a, like a, either a single day or a multi-day, um, you know, training session with, you know, 375 mm-hmm. You know, gigantic velvet bulls or, you know, bulls riding. And, <laughs> that would know. be fun. I would have a ball. I, I, I have never actually been to Estes Park. And so that, that I would love that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you should definitely come out. It's, it's just a really cool experience. Yeah, we can, we can For tell sure. you. Um, you know, like late June, early July is a great time to find the velvet bulls. Um, they're super mellow. You can get right out there and, you know, about 50 yards is kind of a sweet spot for the cameras to, to get a good, a good picture mm-hmm. with the surrounding area. And, and all the calves that aren't scared about, you know, being hunted by wolves or yeah. there's yeah. not really any predators. <laughs> so we get coyotes and mountain lions and obviously and a few the, black bears, yeah, a few black bears, but they're, they're pretty uninterrupted for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that it sounds like the perfect combination, especially for, for what you're talking about, a photography tour. That's, that's like brilliant. Yeah. So well, cool. Now you come out this summer and, and come, you know, check out the velvet bulls and mm-hmm. then we'll plan, a, we'll plan a winter, um, winter 21, uh, wolf hunt. Yeah. There you go. I I'm, I'm, not kidding you. I will do it. Uh, now, uh, y- you have to understand, um, I, I'm, I'm hoping to, I have all winter this winter, so we're, we still have a lot of time, but uh, I am not the best wolf hunter you'll ever meet. That's and, uh, <laughs> but I can, I can get them to howl at me. I, I'm good at getting them to howl at me. Well, let me ask you a question. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned, I mentioned the uh, offline that, uh, that I work at Burris. Um. Mm-hmm. Are you allowed to hunt uh, the wolves up there at night? Not yet. Uh, that is in that is in a discussion. The, the problem with that right now is the big or the the wolves are listed as a big game animal, and so that is on the docket right now. To either the the discussion is either to switch them from being a listed as a big game animal uh, to similar to a, a coyote, where they're more of like a varmint, or um, or allow nighttime thermal imaging and night vision use of uh, nighttime wolf hunting spotlights to, uh, to, to include spotlighting. 
because the Idaho Fishing Game is they have recognized that the 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 really the only successful way to hunt a wolf is not to hunt them at all; it's to trap them. Uh, that's that's really that's really where you're only you're going to see some real consistency. So, uh, and part of that is because they are very nocturnal, um, and so it would be nice to be able to have that that technology ability to help manage these wolves and get these numbers under control. Uh, would be to use the thermal imaging and the and the nighttime scopes and and um, and spotlights. So so Burris is getting ready to they they have not um, launched it yet, but I would presume by the time this episode goes live. Um, on January 13th at this point, uh, Burris is going to be launching a, a new line of uh, thermal optics uh, to include two handheld thermals, two clip-ons that convert your conventional day scope into a thermal scope, and two rifle scopes that are oh, thermal. That would be cool. That would be way cool. I would love to have one just for for coyotes. <laughs> In my, I have a coyote problem at my place, but... Um, that have- I, I let me I will keep you posted as to how that works out in the in the rules. Uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna have to go to the commission, and, and you know it's gonna be a process. But there's some there's some hope that that can get changed pretty quick. Uh, but if if they're the the biggest barrier is if they're la- listed as a big game animal, that's gonna be really difficult. And so that's that's kind of where we're at with that. Well, we could always bring it up and try it out on coyotes. We uh, we took it down to uh, down to Texas and we hunted uh, hogs and uh, hogs and coyotes and fox and raccoons and I mean all kinds of things down there. Uh, oh, that would be so much fun. For just, I mean, absolutely incredible. We were, um, you know, we were walking right up on groups of, you know, forty hogs, yeah, with the uh, with the thermals, yeah. Uh-huh. The uh, the thermal handheld. I've actually got some video that I posted on my awesome. uh, on on Good Bull Outdoors on the Instagram. Um, you can see um, multiple groups of uh, of bull elk uh, sparring, and um, this was at a night. And it's weird. It actually looks like caribou because it's uh, it's the um, black hot uh, setting, uh-huh. color palettes, and uh, um, the scopes have I think ten different crosshair settings, and I'm just incredible stuff. Ah oh, man, that would be a dream. Yeah, it was a post from November 21st. It's a it's a video. And yeah, they totally look like caribou. That's yeah, go I'm going to check that out. I'm going to check that out. I um what do you do you have any I don't know if you can even share this kind of information, but do you have any idea what the price point or something like that was would be? I don't have the MSRP yet because it it hasn't actually been released yet. Um mm. but we should have that very soon. Like I said, it's um, Okay should be releasing uh actually making the introduction to the public um next wednesday the 13th january 13th oh okay so this episode's going to go live not next week the week after i believe the 19th oh, perfect. Um, yep. and so by the time that's live this will already this will be released that that'll be released and and that information should be available yeah yeah and you'll see lots more video on it at uh you know on the burris optics um instagram and uh and facebook pages as well as uh dot com and um we've got some ambassadors out there that have been using them for a while that have been taking some fantastic uh footage with it and um we just got one where um the guy shot a couple of uh a couple of fox at night and uh you know they've been we we hunted coyotes with it down there in texas and uh we had we had a group of four of them and, and we were able to take two of them just like, like we literally walked out into the field within like 60 yards of them. Oh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> I have, I have coyotes running around my yard like crazy at night. When I put the dog up, I can hear them out there, especially in the summer. I'll crack my window. I can hear them out there snarling at each other. And, yeah. um, you know, 
but I, if I, I just have no way, I, I wouldn't feel, wouldn't be right for me to just, uh, you know, turn. So if I turn the lights on, they won't come around anyway. But um, if I had thermal imaging on that, so I, I'd be super interested in one of those. That that um, handheld, and, uh, mm-hmm. handheld, it's like a, a handheld monocular. You can literally see things out past seven hundred yards. Like you can so, make it is seven hundred yards away. Is there is there a way when you're whether it's with the handheld or the the scope mount one you were talking about? Is there is there a way to take video with that? Yes, yeah. So the the handheld actually is really cool. It um it has Wi-Fi to mobile connection, so you can actually use your cell phone to um to like click the record button or take pictures with it to control the different color palettes. It's you've got like full control and like you can be looking through it while somebody next to you can be like pressing the record button, they can see exactly what you're seeing inside of the screen um, just using a Wi-Fi connection to your mobile. That is um, slick. Yeah, and then the rifle scope's got a, a DVR cable out um, that you can use to record it as well. Um, the only one that doesn't have the recording is the uh, is the clip-on, and that one actually is real interesting. It's got a, a device that allows you to um, take it on or off your your daytime scope. So mm-hmm. you can the handheld and then when you're, if you want to shoot with it, you can quickly clip it back onto your scope and then, um, and then actually use your, uh, your conventional scope, uh, like a, like a thermal scope. Oh man, that would be cool. Yeah. Oh, I might need to get one of those. We can, I can't use, I can't use any kind of thermal imaging through a scope for big game Idaho or, uh, animals in the state of Idaho. So, uh, but I do hunt out of state, so there's always that. Yeah, if, if you get down to Texas for hogs or, uh, you mm-hmm. know, hunting in a lot of states, um, you know, a lot of states will allow thermal, especially on private land. Um, you could really quickly take care of your coyote problem at night. Well, I can use them for coyotes. Uh, I just, because they're not, they're not labeled a, a big game animal. So, um, well, let's, let's keep in touch with that for sure. So I, I, I'll, I'll kind of follow that and, and I'll keep you posted on some of the rule changes here in, in Idaho as well. If, if, if they happen. Uh, obviously that's, a, that's always kind of an uphill battle, but, uh, I, I think, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of motivation here to do what is necessary to help get the wolves, uh, within a manageable range because just, you know, right now they're just not. So, um, that's something to definitely, definitely keep, uh, in mind, but, um, gosh, I appreciate you guys coming on. This is, this has been a fun conversation. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we, we covered a lot of ground and, and hit a lot of passion points of ours. So I really appreciate the conversation and the, you know, the time you spent talking to us and inviting us on a podcast that we really appreciate. Yeah. It was great learning about you guys and in your background and in the platform of Good Bull Outdoors. And I'm going to put all that in the show notes so people can jump on your Instagram and follow you. And uh, I think I think it'll be uh, any hunter out there listening to this would uh, enjoy the good bull outdoors Instagram. It's a fun page to follow uh, lots of really good images. And, and a lot of them are um, probably not meant to be, but they're educational. Like, Oh, okay. Um, that's interesting. Seeing that elk do that. Like, you know, the cow elk that ate the, uh, uh, the, the goose or the gosling. Yeah. 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 We're, we're <laughs> learning, you know, lots of different things through, through being able to get to, you know, take photos and videos. That's pretty educational yeah. for sure. Yeah. We, we, we definitely enjoy sharing some of the behavioral aspects of the, the wildlife that we're, that we're mm-hmm. chasing, which is part of the reason why we, you know, added video to our uh, photography. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, for, for guys like me, I geek out with that kind of stuff. If, if there's some kind of behavioral thing that I can get out of, out of some videos, 
um, that's always huge for me. And, and I think a lot of hunters would benefit from, from geeking out on that kind of stuff a little bit more. So guys, thanks a bunch for coming on. Um, with let's, we let's, let's keep in touch and get you guys back on in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, we definitely need to have you down for the photography trip. For sure. Keep me posted. uh, We, we've come down in a heartbeat. Let us know when. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, guys. Thank you. You have a great weekend. All right, you too. You made it all the way to the end. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We sure appreciate your support. This is Jim Huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at Instagram at The Western Huntsman and on Facebook at The Western Huntsman. And you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.